Welcome to Funny They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Brandon Bernstein. And I'm Henry Bernstein. No No relation. Previously on Funny They Don't Look Jewish, your hosts, Brandon and Henry, explored the Jewish roots of Chicago's own mutant superheroine, Kitty Pride of the X-Men. Under the pen of creator and writer Chris Claremont, Kitty Pride confronted demons, vampires, and the shadow of the Holocaust, with her Jewish identity always prominent. Now, we look at where later writers guided both the evolution of Marvel's Merry Mutants and Kitty Pride's own Judaism. Excelsior! Hello, Brandon. Hello, Henry. How you doing? I'm good. We are back. Welcome, everybody, to part two of Funny They Don't Look Jewish, looking at Kitty Pride of the X-Men. So what are we looking at today? So we're going to be looking at the Marvel Holiday Special 1996 in a story titled Unto Others. This is written by Evan Skolnick, drawn by Josh Hood, inked by Derek Fisher, lettered by Jack Morelli, colored by Chi Wang, and edited by Tom Brevoort. All right, um, I'll walk us through. Please. So we open up on page one of the story with Kitty Pride visiting her home in Deerfield, Illinois, just around the corner from us, um, staring at a church that's been burned down. And she phases into the ruins and runs into this young girl of color named Anita Foster. Um, Anita left her locket somewhere in one of the pews the week before the burning, uh, and it was a gift from her now dead father, so she's desperate to get this locket back. Um, Kitty announces to Anita on page four that she came home to spend Hanukkah with her family, uh, and Anita reveals that her mom said that the church was burned down because they're black. Uh, Kitty then makes this general statement that there are people who just hate what's different, And Anita responds with this very, oh, this line just sort of hit me, Henry. She responds, but you don't really understand anyway. You're not black. Kitty Pride is tempted to respond, saying that she knows all about being different because, you know, she's a mutant. And in the Marvel Universe, mutants are hated and feared because of being born with different abilities. It's a really wonderful metaphor uh, for anyone who's different, really. But instead, because... She's so worried about being hated for being a mutant. She says, I know what it's like to be different because I'm Jewish. Anita responds, right, same thing, not. Ooh. Yeah. Um, We'll get into, like, how all this stuff resonates. Katie responds, actually, Anita, this whole thing sounds a lot like the Hanukkah story itself. To which another painful response, Anita asks, what do you mean? The Jews burned churches? Um... Yeah, so this leads to Kitty sort of explaining the story of Hanukkah, talking about Syrian Greeks coming in, driving the Jews out of the land of Israel, desecrating the temple. Uh, Anita responds after this, you know, cursory summary of the Hanukkah story. Nice. Sounds like people have been burning each other's temples for a long time, huh? Which, true words, Anita. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this kid gets it. She totally gets it. Um, Kitty then goes and sort of gives... She's really giving these sort of almost cloying speeches about how all hatred against difference is the same. And Kitty says, underneath our skin, beyond all our differences, languages and customs, we're all the same. Blacks, whites, Jews, Asians, mutants, 
to which Anita does not respond so positively. She doesn't seem to think mutants are human. And then, of course, uh, towards the end of our story, Anita does find the locket, but it's just out of reach, and she can't reach through the fallen beams. And is there any way that Kitty could help her? And Kitty sort of steals herself, gathers her courage, reminds Anita what she said about how we're all human no matter what, and she uses her mutant powers, which are to phase between solid objects. She phases through the beams, outing herself as a mutant, and recovers the locket. Um, and on page nine, the two hug in tears as Anita has her locket back, and I can imagine how meaningful it is to have that reminder of your dead father. And the two of them are just hugging and holding each other, and Kitty says, Merry Christmas, Anita, and Happy Hanukkah. And that's the story. It's only nine pages, it's very short. I have some things I wanna say historically about it, but Henry, How's this hitting you? What are your reactions? There is nothing explicitly Jewish about it. Hmm. That's it. That's my hot take. I, I read this story. The emotional beats hit me in the right ways. I felt connections at certain points, anything. But I don't I don't think there's anything explicitly Jewish in this. Having one panel telling the Hanukkah story doesn't count as explicitly Jewish to you? I don't think so. And I, I think the reason why is because... We've already seen Hanukkah from Kitty Pride two other times, and um, I, I don't. She's not engaging in Jewish ritual by our definition. I think in the first episode, I don't see anything explicitly Jewish. I think it's Jewish, but not explicitly Jewish. So I have two thoughts in response to that, if you'll indulge me, Henry. Please. Um, so the first one is about the Hanukkah stuff. I'm really realizing as we do this project that so many of these holiday specials just throw out a token Hanukkah story where they think that retelling the story behind Hanukkah is sufficient. And it's just, you're not going to get much creativity. You're not going to be able to really delve into things that well. And I think the stories I'm so much more drawn to and interested in are the ones that explore the untapped aspects of Judaism. So I, I agree with you totally that in terms of Hanukkah stuff, there's barely any Jewish content here. It's a nod to Hanukkah at all. It's very clearly an attempt to say, look, this isn't just a Christmas special. This is a holiday special, which fine, I get it. There's a diversity. Hopefully in today's day and age, they'd introduce more than just these holidays, maybe we would get something for Kwanzaa, maybe we would get something for, I know Ramadan's not that time of year, but it would just be nice could to get other holidays. It could be, you never yeah. know. Um, and right, based on the calendar. But the second thing I want to bring up is where I actually think there is a tiny bit of Jewish content, it's not in Hanukkah, but in black Jewish relationships. I think this is a really interesting look in the mid-90s at how the black and Jewish communities saw each other. And I think that that probably extends to today. So I wanna bring in a couple of things. You know, the Jewish community is constantly patting itself on the back for marching in the 60s with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for fighting for civil rights, for sort of being good allies to people of color and to the black community. And today in 2019, it's, a lot more complicated and we find that often the Jewish community does not always find itself um, easy allies with communities of color and there's a lot of tension and some Jewish communities are really good about allying and some Jewish communities are really bad and I ended up deciding to look in a little bit of like why this story at this time is there any reason behind it so I found two things of note that I'd love to share with you the first is I couldn't find anything about an actual church burning in Illinois in the mid-90s, but I did discover that in an 18-month period, 
from 1995 to 1996, more than 30 black churches were burned. So this was actually a sort of epidemic happening in the country, and clearly Evan is Evan Skolnick, the writer, is responding to this reality. In fact, in on July 3rd, 1996, Congress passed something called the Church Arson Prevention Act. So clearly there's this nationwide epidemic of church burnings, and so that's what he's responding to. But what's really interesting, you know, all those lines that were painful to me of Anita basically saying, being Jewish is totally not the same thing as being black. Um, I decided to look a little bit and see if I could find anything. And so the second item I found was from a professor out in uh, the Bay Area, I believe, Professor Julius Lester. Now, Professor Lester is interesting. Uh, he's a Jew of color. And in a 1996 interview with the J, which is a Bay Area Jewish newspaper, he had the following quote. Jews make the assumption that they have a lot in common with blacks. It's not an assumption that blacks share. And so I just, I found this to be an interesting, not quite time capsule, but a, a snapshot of black Jewish relations in the mid nineties that are fairly similar to relationships today where one side, that being the Jewish side, sort of assumes that there's an affinity and a commonality and that there's a lot that we share. And I think that people of color are more dubious of that assumption. And as painful as it was to see on the page, I appreciated the reality of it as printed there. So I don't know. What do you think about that as Jewish content? I'm, not, I'm still not sure that it's explicit Jewish content. It's some kind of content. It's something. Fair. But I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure what. I don't think this is um, an explicitly Jewish story. And... Um, you know, there are some things in it that I appreciated. You know, if it had been a synagogue that had burned in the story, maybe that would be interesting. Now, this is this is like it's always weird when I'm experiencing Kitty um, in her hometown because I worked in Deerfield for almost a decade at a synagogue, and you know, it, I just I, I get like a little hint of like ah nostalgia when I'm with Kitty uh, and she's doing something Jewish in her hometown. Um, but in terms of this story, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing the explicit Jewish content. Okay. We'll have to agree to disagree. On Is this one. our first official disagreement? On terms of Jewish content? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I just, yeah. I viewing it through that lens of it's not religiously Jewish. But there's something about the real lived Jewish experience that is captured and caught on the page. That being what happens when someone who's Jewish interacts with someone of color and there are just different assumptions on either side. Um, and I feel, I feel like I've lived this experience sometimes. And so I see part of my experience on the page and I don't know how to distinguish what is and is not Jewish about my experience because I'm Jewish and therefore everything I experience in some ways is a Jewish experience. So I see myself reflected on the page and therefore it feels like Jewish content because my life is Jewish content in a certain way. Yeah, of course. I, I did have a conversation with someone on Twitter at Jewish Comics Pod about Judaism and explicitly Jewish content, and they referred to that page and that thing issue where they're lighting candles as awful. She's like, you know, there's not really much content, Jewish content in Marvel Comics, you know, except for that awful page in. Uh, that Hanukkah issue with the thing. And I actually thought that was more Jewish than this. And that's where we get into the, you know, culturally Jewish stuff is explicit. 
Jewish content. You know, I th- I think that having um, Chinese food over uh, on Christmas is could be explicit Jewish content. I just don't think this is. That's fair. Um, either way, we are in agreement that ritually Jewish aspects are the most easily identifiable Jewish content, which brings us right into our next issue. Yay! Uh, Hooray! So we are jumping forward in time to November 2002, X-Men Unlimited number 38, with, you know this is a Jewish story right from the title, Henry, a story titled Yartzeit. This is written by, I think, our favorite Jewish writer. 100%. I think he's our guy right now, Greg Rucka. Ever since Batwoman, he has just been on fire in terms of approaching Jewish content in a way you wouldn't anticipate. So it's written by Greg Rucka, it's drawn by Derek Robertson, inked by Derek Robertson, colored by J.D. Smith, lettered by Randy Gentile, or Gentile, or Gentle, I don't know, um, and edited by uh, C.B. Sabalski, who is now the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, I believe? He currently is, yes. Yeah, and I mean, as the title lets you know, this entire issue is basically told through the intriguing narrative device of a yardside candle. It opens with Kitty lighting the candle. It goes through the entire 24 hours that the candle remains lit, and it keeps repeatedly checking back in on the candle to show you how much of it has burned until eventually it's empty. And it's just a really interesting motif throughout the story. So I want to give just a little bit of context and background to this issue. Um, In March 2001, in issue number 390 of Uncanny X-Men, a character named Colossus sacrifices his life in order to cure the legacy virus. Now, the legacy virus is this AIDS allegory that affects only mutants, or predominantly mutants, um, and rather famously, in I think 1993, um, the virus took the life of Colossus's younger sister, Ileana. So... It was a major shocking moment when Colossus dies in the X-Men comics, and Kitty Pride was best friends with his younger sister, very close friends with Colossus, and at one point had a romantic relationship with Colossus. So she's clearly closely tied. She's remembering, and keep in mind, this story is published November 2002, so while it's not exactly one year after Colossus's death, we find ourselves in the year following Colossus's death, which is approximately the right time to light a yardside candle. A yardside candle is lit on the anniversary of a person's death starting after the first year of their death and every year thereafter. Traditionally, Brandon, for whom are yardside candles lit? Right, so traditionally a yardside candle is lit for a relative who is one separation from you, and what that really means, or one degree of relationship away from you. You light a yardside candle for parents, for siblings, for children, for spouses, right? So in traditional Judaism, anybody further than one direct relationship away, meaning grandparents, cousins, etc., um, you would not light a yardside candle for them. It's only someone who's that one direction away from you. Um, and of course, you would only light it for somebody who is Jewish in traditional Judaism. So in addition to being friends with some a rabbi who shares the same last name as me, Hello. I also am married to a rabbi who does not share the same last name as me. So I asked Rabbi Lizzie Heideman of Mishkan, Chicago, is there precedent for lighting a Yartzeit candle for someone who is not Jewish? You know, I think the 
rituals that happen leading up to someone's funeral are for the deceased. And so if a person is Jewish, then it kind of makes sense to do Jewish funeral rites for the person who has died after the person has died. So Shiva, Kaddish, all that stuff is pretty well understood to be for the living, meaning for the character who is lighting the yard side candle, regardless of who has died. So sure, the yard site ritual is a Jewish ritual, but a year after her friend has died, we don't think that you know the spirit of her friend is like still here. We, we sort of imagine that that spirit has gone on. Lighting the yard side candle is for her to remember. And so in that sense, you know, she can light a yard side candle for anybody she wants to remember. And people do that. Great. Yeah, I 100% agree. So should we dive into the issue now? Yes. Great. So on page two, we've got this full page spread of Kitty Pride drawn in those beautiful, beautiful pencils of Derek Robertson. Um, she's wearing this Xavier School t-shirt. She's lighting a yardside candle and she's noting it's one year to the day since Colossus died. There's a blue candle, which is interesting. I don't know if I've seen blue wax before, but it's this blue candle uh, with a Star of David on the glass. And just to let everybody know, also of note, Yartzite, depending how you translate it, is Yiddish for either time of year or a year's time. So a great term for the story that's representing a year's time. Um, on page three, after officially lighting the candle, Kitty recites the following. Sustained by words of faith, comforted by precious memories, we kindle the Yartzite light in remembrance. The human spirit is the light of the Lord. As this light burns pure and clear, so may the memory of the goodness and the nobility of our dear Peter, our dear Peter Nikolovich Rasputin, illumine our souls. Zichrono livracha, his memory is a blessing. At which point Kitty collapses onto her bed in tears and I feel like I'm gonna collapse in tears. Um, listeners may know I lost my father in December, he died, and so I've not yet lit a yard site candle for him. Um, going through this mourning process, it is rough, and this story brought me to tears every single time I read it in preparation. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about what Katie said, because I found it fascinating. Um, all right, first of all, she has this whole what feels like sort of a liturgical line of sustained by words of faith, comforted, etc. But there's no formal prayer associated with lighting the actual candle. Mm. And I wanted to know where this was from. Um, and I found it on many, many reform websites listed as something you can say before lighting a yardside candle. And thanks to a friend of mine, Rabbi Joe Schwartz, he did some looking into it for me. And apparently this whole block of text that Kitty says that Greg Rucka writes in for her, it first appeared in 1977 in the reform movement's Gates of the House, the New Union Home Prayer Book, Prayers and Readings for Home and Synagogue, which was edited by uh, Chaim Stern. So this is a reform text that has been used over and over again. Greg Rucka wrote it in word for word, which is 
pretty incredible. And the text itself includes actually the Jewish origin for why we even light a yardside candle, that being Proverbs 2027, which has this lovely line, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam, Chofes Kol Chazre Vaten. The soul of a man, the soul of a human being, is the light of God, or is the candle of God, searching all the innermost parts. Um, and the final part I want to say is, you know, Kitty ends by saying, Zichrono Livrecha, mm-hmm. the traditional honorific for the dead. Henry, how is it that just two words in print, I don't know if I've ever been more emotional reading a comic than reading that. I feel pride and amazement and this deep, deep sadness reading it. Like, those two words, I never in my life expected to read a comic book that was a mainstream superhero comic that would have a character saying, Zichrono Livrecha. Wow. Yeah, it takes us right back to uh, Batwoman at um, her mother's funeral and, um, you know, how spot on that was. But here we, anytime we see Hebrew on the page that's um, accurate, it's special. It's a, it feels, you know, it goes back to our thing about being seen. And, you know, if you're someone who has lost someone and you've said those words, which is a lot of, you know, pretty much everyone at some point will lose someone. Um, it's, you know, it's special that our, you know, our, our, our hero here is mourning in that way. And, um, I feel very close to her right now. And I feel very grateful and also close to Greg Rucka for doing that. Totally. Yeah. Like, to be able to take this very personal and intense experience and to put it on the page in a way that is undeniably, unabashedly Jewish and yet is so approachable and universal at the same time. It's just, um, this is everything I want out of Jewish content and it's not even the end of the issue's Jewish content. Yeah. So Kitty leaves her house after lighting the candle. She admits that she's lied to herself when she claimed she came to she had come to peace with Colossus's death and basically she's just angry she's admitting that she's super angry um on page five we have her thinking to herself selfish that's what it is i just want him back why is that wrong to feel that i just want my friend back i just want my love back god i loved him and i want him back and i don't know you can maybe hear it in my voice reading that line also like 100 percent how i feel obviously it's a different relationship but how i feel with my father like Mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm over six months into this process and I desperately just want to be able to talk to him again. Um, yeah. A year is not, even though a year in Judaism marks a closure of a certain time, and we'll get to that in the issue, um, it is not enough time. It is not enough time. And I, I felt so seen by reading Kitty say this. Yeah, and maybe because a year isn't enough time, that's why... Every year we, you know, we mark it in this way in perpetuity. Right. right. It never goes away. Right. We, every year we acknowledge that it continues to linger one way or another. Um, 
as Kitty keeps going in her day, she ends up seeing this man she thinks is Peter, she thinks is Colossus back, and that provides the plot for the rest of the issue as Kitty essentially stalks this man, mm-hmm. convinced that one of their enemies has resurrected Colossus or is trying to mess with her. Um, she ends up having a phone call with my favorite character, Nightcrawler, Kurt mm-hmm. Wagner, um, and as she's having the conversation with Kurt, there's a yardside candle prominent at the top of each page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kurt wonders if Kitty's just imagining things and basically brings up, you know, given the anniversary, given that Peter's on her mind, is that why you think you're seeing him everywhere? And it just reminds me that also associated with the art site candle, we might light one not only on the anniversary of their death, but also we light them at certain holidays in conjunction with a service that we have, which is, of course, the Yisker service. And Yisker means remember, and that indeed is what Kitty, we light the candle to remember these people. Colossus is on her mind. I love that 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 remember, remember is just under the surface here. Um, by page 11, the candle is going out and the narration says, the candle is supposed to burn for 24 hours. I burn for longer. Because Shadowcat's talking like her anger and her passion goes much longer than the 24 hours. And by the bottom right of page 11, the art site candle has gone out entirely. It's dark and covered in shadow but smoke is still rising. And then on the next page, top left of the page, the candle is fully empty, reflecting bright light. Kitty continues to travel. Nightcrawler comes to visit her. She brings him into her apartment. The yardside candle that has burned down is prominently shown. Uh, Kurt is a Catholic priest, by the way, at this point in continuity. He talks Kitty down. He provides great pastoral care for her and helps her come to terms with the facts that she wanted it to be Colossus that she saw, even though it clearly wasn't. On page 19, we have this... I just want to take us through this page because it's so amazing. In the top left, we have an empty yardside candle. In the top middle, Kitty grabs it. On the top right, Kitty throws the case in the trash, and we can see that she has had a cathartic moment, and she's moving on in a new way. She's cleaning up. She writes Kurt a note wishing him a good day, and the narration, which is Kitty's inner monologue, says... Maybe the answer to all grief lies in a good cry. Religion and ritual. There's always a reason. Grief in Judaism is broken into phases, and the Yartzeit is really the last one. There are rules. What you're supposed to do the first day after a loved one dies, then the first week, then the first month, all the way to the first year the first yard site. The idea, I guess, is that it's supposed to take that whole year to come to terms with the loss. So the yard site, it's closure, but it's more. Because when someone you love dies, it never goes away. Some days are easier than others. Some days, maybe you can't think about it at all, but it never goes away. And that's all right. That's as it should be. I mean, I just have in my notes, I literally wrote, thank you, thank you, Greg Rucka, for writing this. Um, yeah, we got to meet him sometime. And, uh, and just, you know, the, the one time we met him, we hadn't read all these things yet or, right. or thought about it in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, I would love to talk to him a bit more about this. I mean, so, you know, Kitty 
Greg Rucker does such a good job of showing that he knows what's Jewish and he's not going to get lost in it. Like we're going to explain, right? Kitty goes through and says there's rules of what you're supposed to do the day after a loved one dies, right? During the period of what's called Oninut, which is unconsolable mourning before you buried the body and what you do. Then the first week, which of course is a reference to Shiva, the one week period after someone di- after someone is buried, during which you mostly just don't leave the house and have visitors coming to comfort you in your grief and just sort of deal with the grief. And then there's other rules about that first month after someone dies, which is a period called Shloshim, Hebrew for 30, in other words, the first month. And as she says, all the way to the first year, which traditionally the laws of mourning for that first year are only for a parent. But in more modern Judaism, a lot of people tend to follow those rules for siblings, for lovers, for others, and here clearly Kitty's doing it for her friend. It might be because of the emotional state I'm in this year, but I really do think this is not just one of the most Jewish, but one of the most special comics I've actually ever read in my life. What are we looking at next, Brandon? We are looking at all-new X-Men number 13 from 2013. It is untitled, and it is written by... Brian Michael Bendis, our other favorite Jewish writer. Yeah, I think first appearance on this podcast by... Welcome, Bendis. Welcome to the Jewish family. Welcome to the Mishpacha, as he has said, even on Twitter, about Jewish characters. The Mishpacha. Um, Anyway, okay. Written by Brian Michael Bendis, drawn by Stuart Immonen, the artist who drew that thing issue that um, Carl Kessel wrote. Yes. Inked by Wade Von... Gra Badger, colored by Rain Burrito, lettered by VCs Corey Petit, edited by Nick Lowe. Yeah, I want to give a little bit of background and continuity context, and maybe after I give that, you can take us through sure. the bit. Cool. Cotemporaneous with this time, at the same time, another writer named Rick Remender is writing a book called Uncanny Avengers, which features what's called a unity squad, meaning it's a team of both human Avengers and mutant X-Men. It's the first time really we've had this actively half-mutant, half-Avengers team. And in issue number five of that series from March 2013, just a few months before this issue, a character named Havoc, who is the brother of Cyclops, is a mutant, gives the following speech. I don't see myself as born into a mutant cult or religion. Having an X gene doesn't bond me to anyone. It doesn't define me. In fact, I see the very word mutant as divisive, old thinking that serves to further separate us from our fellow man. We are all humans of one tribe. We are defined by our choices, not the makeup of our genes. So please, don't call us mutants. The M word represents everything I hate. He then goes on when a reporter asks him, what should we call you? He's like, why not start with Alex, my name? And it's it's meant to be this beautifully hopeful message. And Henry, this comic caused such a backlash, both in the comics themselves and on the online forums, as all sorts of people were like, you're basically trying to preach assimilationist politics and the idea of don't see me for my differences, which this was 2013. I can only imagine if this came out today. Um... Anyway, so like I said, this issue comes at, that issue of Uncanny Avengers came out in March. In June, this issue of All New X-Men is released, and it's going to contain a response to Havoc's infamous M-word speech, as it's referred to later. A tiny bit more context for the issue itself. 
the original five X-Men from 1963, from the start of the book, as their young selves, have been brought from the past into our current time. And so now the original five, young versions of the original five, are interacting with our current team. And Kitty Pride, who was once the youngest member of the X-Men, now finds herself now finds herself in the role of mentor to the original five X-Men. And that's I think that's all we need to know. Great. So the X-Men are coming back from a mission that seems to have gone awry. They're having a discussion on their um, their jet, and um, the Beast jumps in and says, is it a bad word? Mutant? Is it derogatory? And to which I- Iceman responds, any word can be derogatory if you say it with enough derogatory. Pepperoni. <laughs> and then... Uh, the young beast says, "What do you think about this, Professor?" Now he's not talking to Professor X; he's talking about he's talking to Kitty Pride, right? And I also just want to point out, um, twice before this in this comic, we saw actual word balloons of havoc speech being broadcast. We saw it first to the villains in the issue, and then that's actually what sparked this conversation: is they're listening on the Blackbird jet to the interview with Havoc. To those words I read earlier, that's what sparked Beast asking, is this derogatory? And now, Henry, as you're going to do, go ahead and read us Shadowcat's answer. So Kitty says, kind of casually, but about to launch into a lecture, here's the thing. I'm Jewish. I don't have a quote, unquote, Jewish-sounding name. I don't look or sound Jewish, whatever that looks or sounds like. So if you didn't know I was Jewish... You might not know, unless I told you. Same goes for my mutation. I don't have to wear a visor or have blue fur all over me. I can walk around, just a young woman of the world. But I'm not. When I was 13, before my mutation kicked in, I was in love with this boy at school. In love. And I followed him around like a puppy dog because I was an idiotic 13-year-old girl. And one day, he saw a rabbi across the street. And he made the worst anti-Semitic comment ever. I won't even repeat it. He just said this awful thing and laughed and laughed and laughed. And and my heart sank. And then my blood boiled. I mean, boiled. I turned to him and I growled, I'm Jewish. And he just stared at me like he didn't even realize he had said something wrong. Or he didn't know how to compute what I just said. But when I got home, after I was done crying my eyes out, my first heartbreak, I realized I was, maybe for the first time ever, I was really proud of myself. I am Jewish. I am a mutant. And I want people to know who and what I am. I tell people because, hey, if we're going to have a problem with it, I'd like to know. So, no offense to your brother, Scott, but he sure as hell ain't talking for me. You go, girl. Yeah. And Iceman says, you're Jewish? Right. <laughs> totally. That is not the takeaway, but it's amazing no. that that's Iceman's response. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, Henry, let's break this down. Like, first of all, nobody does dialogue quite like Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, you can, you can definitely see the difference in dialogue from Claremont's from uh, Rucka. Bendis has this way of writing. It's kind of Joss Whedon-y. Like, it's how he thinks teenagers kind of talk but it's very conversational and casual and um 
it, it sometimes feels not real, but also very real, if that makes sense. Completely. Completely. It's, it's, the, it's one of the ways I wish more people talked in yeah. a certain way. Yeah. All right, Heather, let's start to break this down. Okay. Um, so again, it's so Bendis, not only in, in the cadence of the words and the way he writes it, um, but in the way that Bendis is Jewish. And I want to throw out for you, Henry, I am more convinced that, than ever that the explicit Jewish content is directly dependent upon the Jewish pride or identity of the author, right? Both Bendis and Rucka are pretty outspoken about their Jewish identities, and I want to just throw out a sort of theory before we really dive back into the words that Kitty said. It really is feeling to me like Claremont's Judaism is totally Holocaust-centric. Maybe a little bit of Israel, but that's all it's really about. There's not really much content other than the Holocaust. Rucka is very much educated and ritually based. And so we see stories that involve Kabbalah, that involve a yard site candle, um, that involve Hanukkah, but go deep into the meaning of lighting the Hanukkah, right? And Bendis seems to be cultural and built on this idea of Jewish pride and pride in identity, right? Like, I, I, you're starting to recognize the not just Jewish content, but the flavor of different types of Jewish content based on who is writing. He has talked about uh, in recent interviews when he's when he uh, started writing Superman and going back to his roots in Cleveland where Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are from. He has talked about growing up, Jewish day school, Yeshiva Bacher, like that kind of thing. So he 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 is becoming. It seems like recently he is becoming more and more. I would say in the last six to eight years, open about his Judaism and really embracing it and tying it in with the characters that that he writes. You don't see it really in. Daredevil, which is his earlier work in Marvel. Oh, Daredevil, the classic Catholic superhero. Exactly, <laughs> right? Um, and thank you. And uh, but and this was sort of the first time. I mean, I think what he's saying about Kitty here, he's he's saying about himself. Like you wouldn't know that my name, that I'm Jewish, based on my name or how right. I look. Right. You know. I, um, and I actually didn't know Brian Michael Bendis was Jewish until I read this issue. I knew others. Knew it, but I'm a DC guy. My exposure to Bendis were like these long runs of comics that, like you or others, would recommend to me. Um, and so when I read All New X Men for the first time three years after it happened, um, that's when I found out he was Jewish. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't remember when I found out he was Jewish, but I, I love what he does does here. I love the fact, also, you know, you're talking about this for Bendis himself. I love that Bendis manages to both acknowledge the idea that they're essentially without saying it directly, he's acknowledging that there are some Jews who can just pass for white, who can pass for not being different from the Christian norm at all. And he acknowledges the fact that it's kind of a problem to assume that there is a certain Jewish look, right? Um, we've talked about Jews of color earlier this episode, and you know when we talk about Jews looking a certain way, that's really an assumption of a certain Ashkenazi. Most Americans envision Ashkenazi Jews as what Jewish looks like. Uh, and so I feel like Bendis is kind of implicitly acknowledging there's Sephardi Jews, there's Mizrahi Jews, there's Jews of color, there are Jews that very much don't look Ashkenazi, what what Americans picture as Jewish. And Kitty acknowledges that because she doesn't look like that Ashkenazi Jew, she's able to pass. She doesn't have this Jewish look. Um, she doesn't have a Jewish sounding name. But she does have, going back to her first appearance, she 
prominently wears a Star of David, right? She chooses to put out a way to show the world that she's Jewish and she's not, she could pass if she wants to, and she's declaring she doesn't want to. And I bet this story that she's telling, I bet that ha- happened to Bendis. We've been kind of jokingly giving four or five Magin Davids to whether something is explicitly Jewish or not, you know, on a scale. But, you know, I'm just sort of speculating out loud, maybe we should be talking about, you know, giving stars to the, those creators. I mean, like, Bendis and Rucka are top of the list for me. Um, you know, and Carl Kessel, um, Kiesel, <laughs> I, you know, he obviously got us started, but um, thank you, Bendis. Yeah, really, thank you for this. It's really, right. I mean, also want to acknowledge Dan Slott clearly wrote a lot of great things stuff for us. But yeah, I think we're in agreement that we found some issues with the accuracy of what Dan Slott would write. So it was appreciated. But yeah, I'd agree. Rucka and with this one issue, Bendis is immediately up there for us. And I just want to go back to that idea of what happens when you can pass as just being an average white person in America or you can wear a Jewish symbol that lets you at least stand out a little differently, you know? I have friends who started wearing yarmulkes more recently for Davka that reason. In an era of rising anti-Semitism, where not here in the U.S., but, you know, I keep reading travel warnings saying, if you go to this city, don't wear a yarmulke. If you go visit this country, don't wear a yarmulke. Um, In a time where you could easily blend in and it's potentially dangerous, I think... I'm with Kitty. I wear my yarmulke proudly. I want the world to know I'm Jewish. And I love that Bendis wrote Kitty as also wanting people to know. Amen. Amen. Um, I think that's the end of our exploration of Kitty Pride. That's the end of the X-Men. I'm going to be sad to leave them behind because they are a favorite of mine. But uh, Something tells me we'll be coming back to the X-Men fairly soon. Yeah, it's almost like there's some sort of magnetic attraction pulling us back to them. Um, Something, some sort of maybe Omega-level attraction. Yeah, most definitely. But for now, that has been Kitty Pride. Join us next month as we explore a brand new character. We'll keep it a surprise as to who that is. Uh, But in the meantime... I'm Henry Bernstein. And I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter at Jewish Comics Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at gmail.com.